You're listening to Counsel That Cares, a podcast series brought to you by Holland and Knight's healthcare and life sciences team. With more than 400 attorneys practicing across the healthcare industry, members of our healthcare and life sciences team are on the leading edge of industry developments. This series serves as your personal checkup on the multifaceted playing field of healthcare law and business trends. Welcome to Holland and Knight's Healthcare Podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by representatives from Gibbons Advisors who recently released a report covering the state of healthcare bankruptcies at the end of 2022. And this report shows some fascinating data and findings regarding the drivers of healthcare bankruptcies and the sectors within healthcare that are experiencing the highest volumes of bankruptcies and what organizations can do to best position themselves into the future. I recently interviewed another member of the Gibbons team to discuss this report and the findings specific to hospitals and health systems. And today we are going to turn our attention to the report's findings related to pharmaceutical companies. Joining me are Ron Winters and Alan Shaw from Gibbons, along with Phil Nelson, a partner in Holland and Knight's bankruptcy practice. Everyone, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Morgan. So before we jump into the report, I would love if each of you could just take a few minutes to tell us more about yourself and your firm. So Ron, I'll start with you. Sure. Thank you, Morgan. Again, Ron Winters. I'm one of the co-founders, along with Claire Moylan, who we spoke with last week. We're the co-founders of Gibbons Advisors. We're a boutique restructuring firm focused principally on healthcare. In middle market cases, we also do some limited scope work on larger cases firm's coming up on the beginning of its fifth year. Prior to forming Gibbons in 2019, I spent most of my restructuring career at Alvarez and Marcel, where I worked with Alan. I was there for 16 years, working principally on healthcare cases. And prior to that, I worked as a special assets policy guy at a middle market lender. Excellent. Thank you so much. Alan? Uh, thank you, Morgan. I'm Alan Shore, and I'm a five-time public company CFO, primarily in the biopharmaceutical space. I've been involved with large companies like Serrano when they were the third largest biotech company in the world. More recently at Syndax, an increasingly relevant clinical stage oncology company, which I helped take public. Suffice to say, I know what good looks like. I know what big looks like. I also know what bad looks like. I'm quite entrepreneurial as well, and I can roll up my sleeves and know how to get things done. All said, I've been involved with raising over $4 billion of public and private financing over the years, including several IPOs. I've also been involved with the sourcing, the development and commercialization of numerous drug products across an array of therapeutic areas. And lastly, I've had the privilege and burden of being a seven-time public company board of directors. used to think audit was the worst part of governance until I got tasked with compensation, which is by far the most thankless part. Great to be here. Absolutely. Great. And then Phil? Hi, Morgan. My name is Philip Nelson. I am a partner at Holland and Knight. I practice in our bankruptcy, restructuring, and creditors' rights practice group. I've been practicing for about 19 years. Joined Holland and Knight back in 2019 from my prior firm. And my experience in a lot of ways, I think, mirrors Holland and Knight generally, which is I've interacted in just about every area of restructuring and bankruptcy work. So I've been involved representing debtors. I've done trustee and creditor committee work. We also do both secured and unsecured credit representations on a fairly regular basis, even some work in the Chapter 15 international bankruptcy arena as well, including a recent Canadian pharmaceutical that needed to seek Chapter 15 protection after filing a Canadian reorganization case. So fairly broad experience in bankruptcy areas and pretty much anything that is in one way or another touched on a distressed debt of some type. 
Great. Well, thank you all for those introductions. So, Ron, I want to turn my attention back to you and first get a general overview of the report's findings. Can you provide us with some key takeaways as we broadly look at healthcare bankruptcies in 2022? Sure, Morgan. And what we're talking about now is a report that our firm came out with a couple months back, uh, sort of reviewing healthcare restructuring commencing in 2019. Holland Knight is going to provide a link to the report through our website. In the show notes, you can look at it at your convenience. So I think the takeaway that I was going to bring to today's podcast is that in 2022, there was a pretty pronounced increase in bankruptcy filings. Pretty quiet, had been declining since 2019, 2020, there wasn't that much. 2021, there was less. In 2022, there were 46 healthcare restructurings as we follow them, and that would be bankruptcies with at least $10 million of liabilities. About half of them were in senior care or pharmaceutical senior care being skilled nursing, assisted living, independent living, CCRCs. Half of them were in either senior care or pharmaceuticals. The rest were in hospitals, medical equipment, physician practices, and miscellaneous other. So last year, there were 46 filings, which was an 84% increase from 2021. And of the 46, 31 of them were in what I would characterize as smaller cases, 10 to $50 million of liabilities. And that was a pronounced increase from 2021, nearly three and a half times. 50 to 100 million, pretty good size. Flat from last year with eight. 100 million to 500 million, a significant decrease from all of the prior years at just two. And then very large ones, over 500, there were five. And that was a significant increase from 2021 and the largest of any of the last four years. Great summary. So now we'd like to turn our attention to specifically talking about the pharmaceutical activity that you saw in this report. Ron, I'll start with you. And of course, want Alan to provide any other takeaways from that piece of the report. Sure. So in terms of pharmaceuticals specifically, of the 46, 14 of them were pharmaceutical or pharma related. Those were a significant amount of them in the smaller amount. Eight of them were in the 10 to $50 million range. Three were in the very large range. And again, two were between 50 and 100 million and one between 100 and 500 million. That 14 is about a quarter of all of the pharma cases filed in the last four years, 38 filed in total, and again, 14 of them last year, and principally focused, again, at least half of them in the smaller cases. I think when you talk about bankruptcies in the pharmaceutical sector, I think they fall into kind of two different categories. They're the revenue-generating companies, specialty pharmaceutical companies that have found themselves with the balance sheet that's not quite right-sized with the expectations they had for operations. And I think those are probably more prevalent, and arguably there is more of a potential recovery because of the cash flow associated with that. I'd say that a lot of companies in the sector right now are really running into what I would call inability to fund their businesses. They don't necessarily have debt uh, swords hanging over their heads, but the fact is that they just can't necessarily keep their lights on. And I think the market is anticipating that right now, and if you look at the public, public markets in particular, there is over 200 companies right now that are trading with negative enterprise value. Many of them don't have debt, 
but you know you can think of it almost like a reality show terms they're effectively being voted off the island and you're starting to see now companies that are deciding to wind up operations certainly seeing a few people some companies that are deciding to give the money back i'd say that's the far and few between i would say a lot of them are now looking at reverse merger opportunities. I would also say, given the fact that the IPO market has backed up quite a bit, people are now kind of viewing this as negative enterprise value companies as opportunities to kind of uh, go public through them. You know, when I reflect on the environment and look back, I think it's important to understand how we got here. And, you know, we've had a wonderful, glorious run in the sector for the last 10 years. It's been one hell of a party, you know, when money's free, everyone can look like a rock star. And we certainly saw the excesses of that over the last 10 years. So I would say, you know, we all know how we feel after a night out. You know, think about it at doing this for 10 years consecutively. You know, these 200 plus negative enterprise value companies are effectively akin to empty beer bottles after a party that require recycling. So, you know, they're neither fish nor fowl. And certainly some of them, the babies being thrown out with the bathwater, but a lot of them really serve as an opportunity for, I guess, a form of reincarnation or recycling where people can go public. And I'm actually involved with a company that just went public yesterday through a reverse merger. And I've quipped that reverse mergers will be the new IPO during 2023. And there's certainly some evidence of that. But from what I've observed is the biggest rate limiting factor are actually the companies themselves. You know, a lot of the management teams of these empty beer bottle companies are rather contrite. You know, they actually like to continue to pay themselves. They like, you know, their living. And when we've been going through the process of trying to engineer a reverse merger, you know, we kissed a lot of frogs. We shuck a lot of hands. And suffice to say, the pushback we got was many of these management teams actually wanted to stay in the seat. You know, it was certainly a breach of fiduciary responsibility. You know, here you are bringing another asset to the equation. You'd want people to have some institutional knowledge of how to maximize the value of this. And these folks really didn't get it. You know, I'd also take a step back. Is it really the phenotype that you want in a management team to lead a company either? And I can speak to the transaction we're in. If they had recognized that the car was running out of gas earlier on, they would have gotten a much better deal on the exchange ratio. But they squandered a year's overhead and certainly did not engineer as good a transaction as they might have otherwise. And when I've talked to people about this, from what I'm getting, it's not just the management teams, it's the boards themselves. You would think a lot of these companies should be running around with their hair on fire. And in many cases, uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. Is that because the board members are not educated on the business itself? I think they're sitting on a lot of cash and they're not seeing the immediacy of the problem. Isn't that commonly the situation? You know, I would say, generally speaking, that's correct. I would say that not always sitting on a lot of cash. I guess a lot of cash is a relative statement for people. You know, certainly they can pay themselves for the foreseeable period of time. You know, and it seems to me when you have leadership that's more focused on making paying themselves as opposed to, you know, kind of swinging for the fences and creating real value, it's not the right leadership. You know, it's wrong on a number of different levels. And to your point, Morgan, you know, why? I would assume that people aren't necessarily always aware of what their options are. And you think it requires a little bit of thinking out of the box. You know, you're thinking about the people who comprise these boards. You think about the operators, you know, they're drug developers. They're not necessarily financial engineers. So when you're talking about a reverse merger, I think you're asking people to do things that are probably beyond their pay grade in some respects. 
and they don't necessarily understand how they can create value. If you've ultimately concluded that your technology isn't going to work, it would seem to me that you're now captive on a burning bridge. You're beholden to really do something while you still can. Can I jump in here for a second? Tell me if you agree with this. I think we're going to see restructuring activity. It's really on the smaller ones because I think some of these larger ones still have at least a good amount of cash where they're not sort of seeing the end of the road yet. You and I spoke yesterday and you shared with me some research from a month or two ago by Jeffries where they sort of isolated, I think, 24 companies with market cap of 100 million or more where that did have negative enterprise value, as you mentioned. And so I dug a little bit more on those. And of the 24, only eight of them have debt. And in each case, they had more cash than they had debt. I figured that's not sort of fertile ground in terms of restructuring. Although I would think we're all following the larger ones. I think there's probably a lot of activity with much smaller ones. What do you think, Alan? Am I right about that? No, I think it really comes down to how do you define what is restructuring? I would say that even if you don't have the debt on your balance sheet, a lot of companies are restructuring their operations, their focus. There's certainly been a lot of layoffs. I think before people did things because they can, and now they're realizing that they've got to rationalize their resources. The punch bowl isn't getting replenished so quickly. And I think there's been a lot of latency in people recognizing that. So I think a lot of people are waking up and smelling the coffee this year when they really blew a year where they could have better managed their cash resources. And I think a lot of it had to do with people, whatever their reasons were, felt that this was just going to be a passing storm. And I think it's really clear that it's not a passing storm. It's the consequences of living high on the hog for the last decade. And a lot of the stuff is zero sum. So a lot of people were sitting around with their fingers crossed and hoping. Suffice to say, hope is not a strategy. And I think in many respects, people are now realizing that they've got to do something. So they are restructuring their businesses, Ron, but it's not the traditional sense in terms of the debt restructuring, but they are working on their cash burn and figuring out how to do more with less. Let me make an observation with respect to the smaller firms, smaller companies that are attempting to develop new medical technology or new pharmaceuticals. It's going to be an opportunity for these larger entities to do some consolidation, to do some acquisition. If they can do it smartly and maybe find a useful product in there, whereas the products they're already pursuing either aren't going to end up going anywhere, or maybe there's some additional technology or some additional products that they can bring to market. For example, a smaller company, what you're going to see a lot of times is not a real restructuring in the traditional sense, but you'll see a chapter 11 filing that's going to lead to a sale of the assets and then some distribution either under a plan or otherwise to uh, the remaining creditors. But that does create opportunities for larger companies that have the money to spend. I did have a thought. And I wanted to see what you thought of this, which is with respect to some of these larger, better funded, and even investment funded companies, I wonder to what extent pharmaceutical space, this sort of tech world fail fast and iterate ideology is driving this lack of urgency that you kind of describe around the efficiencies of the company and the company's ability to actually generate a profit. I mean, this idea of, well, we'll put a lot of assets together and we'll try to discover a useful technology or something we can take to market. But it's really sort of about getting through the process of making attempt, failing and iterating and seeing where that development takes us and less of an urgency you know, when interest rates were low, when capital is available around when is this going to yield something that's going to be a useful product or allow us to generate profitability? You know, it's an interesting question. 
I would say that a lot of the companies, you're really investing in them or buying into them, really more on the promise of the science working as opposed to necessarily expecting them to turn around and be a cash flow company paying a dividend. I've often quipped that I think for companies, right, particularly in life sciences, where you're making decisions and resource allocation, that really you're looking at five and 10 year time horizons. So to me, the interest rate dynamic is less about the expectations becoming cash flow positive sooner than later, other than the collateral implications on our cost of capital. And I think the macro really drives the sector in this point. Why did we have a party for 10 years? It's because interest rates were very low. And because interest rates were very low, people were looking for returns and they were getting aggressive with their returns. And they were looking at the biotech and the farmer sector to get extra yield. As a consequence, we had a real inflow of generalist investors that went beyond the traditional specialist folks that comprise our sector. And, you know, I think now with reflection, those generalists were really tourists. They grew in and they were out. And the flow of funds has really pulled itself out. So I think the higher interest rates, rather than putting pressure on the development timelines, the interest rates aren't going to necessarily change the pace of development itself. I still think capital efficient companies will kill their experiments as quickly and run the killer experiments to get answers, as opposed to turning it into an entitlement. I think that there is a way to distinguish that and good run companies will continue to do that irrespectively. But I do think that because of the cost of capital factor, it becomes much harder to finance a company these days. And it kind of goes back to some of the informal restructuring that people are doing by killing programs, rationalizing, focusing on just one thing. Because right now, of course, the financing is really, really, really punitive. You know, I think it really comes into different several sets of flavors. You know, if you have data, which is really the currency of the industry, you can raise money. Maybe not necessarily as effectively as you could do before, but you can still have access to capital. I would say for those who do not have data, it becomes a little harder for folks. And I think it falls into a couple of different categories that companies can go about trying to raise money. If you don't have insider support and you don't have data, you're probably likely going to be doing more of a Band-Aid type of financing, which will fund you to the next milestone. And right now, those financings are extremely punitive. Usually, you're doing them at around a 20% discount to where the market's trading. And then these days, they also come with warrant coverage that can really increase the level of dilution. With that said, I've never seen a company go bankrupt from dilution. But the key factor is, is that dilution is becoming more and more punitive. And I think you're also seeing more of the specialist funds gravitating away from those Band-Aid financings because, you know, those are not holistic solutions for companies. And I think they're really looking at holistic solutions and willing to make bets on selective situations where the technology is really differentiated, where the jockeys and the management team have a history. And they want to make sure you're funded really through all of your valuation inflection points. And that's also going to be very expensive because when you look at these companies, you know, a lot of their market caps are under $100 million now. So to develop drugs, you know, you're raising 50 million, 80 million dollars. Those recapitalizations are going to be hard on companies and hard on investors. I think we're at, as an industry, no pun intended, but we have to take our medicine and rip that bandaid off. You need to capitalize yourself. And I think trying to raise money until you turn over your next card, it's kind of like doing a high wire act without a safety net. There will be some companies, Alan, don't you think, who are already at under 18 months, maybe under a year of cash left, unable to raise money at any price. I mean, those are the ones that presumably have the worst science or the most vulnerable. Am I seeing it the way you do? 
Yeah. I mean, there's always a market clearing price, but I think it's becoming harder in a lot of these companies. Just to illustrate, I think the industry itself has had a little bit of a resource allocation issue. For instance, there's over 100 CAR-T CD19 companies out there. There's absolutely no reason for that. So, you know, I think a little bit of this is that we have not been very good stewards in terms of the resources that have been allocated to a lot of these companies. So, yeah, I think we are seeing some Darwinism here. There's some companies that are just not fit to be out there, and some of them are going away. You're hearing about them. I don't think you're really going to see a lot of Chapter 11s. I think these are all Chapter 7s. I think the ones that have the greatest likelihood of a Chapter 11 filing are the ones that do have some debt for various reasons. They were able to raise some under more favorable circumstances, or they had a product that then later faltered, or they had litigation, or they were opioid. I mean, I did a quick tour of some of the 14 that went bankrupt last year, and sort of that seemed to be the common theme as far as I was concerned. What forced it was they had debt, probably secure debt in many cases, that they had to answer to, and the secureds wanted the transaction or to take the asset themselves if they had to. Although in that case, a lot of times we do end up seeing it as an 11 with a 363 sale as opposed to putting it in the hands of the Chapter 7 and getting a trustee who maybe they can manage the process efficiently and well, or maybe they can't. I think particularly sophisticated secured lenders have a lot of suspicion around what they're going to get if they get a panel trustee. feel much more comfortable leaving management in place, particularly where they've already arranged for what the sale process is going to look like. A couple of sort of mid-sized, actually, they were in the smaller end of the range that I described before that I looked at preparing for today. I mean, they made an effort to sell the company at the urging or requirement of the secures. They were unsuccessful doing it out of court, probably because they also had some trade liabilities of significant size. And uh, they went in and immediately continued their sale process and were able to get transactions done at pretty unhappy prices relative to the secured debt, but they got something done. So I'm curious, you know, we talked about some of the drivers, either whether or not you're a smaller pharma company or a larger company, a lot of attention out in the market right now, it seems on, this is more specific to the larger companies that have successful drugs out there, but may have patents expiring soon. I mean, is there any sort of financial strain that we're seeing on those businesses, particular to either patents expiring or other issues that are greatly impacting the larger pharma companies? I think there is certainly a lot of patent expiration. You know, Merck is, has their checkpoints, got a couple of years left on those patents, and that's a $20 million product and is becoming a significant portion of Merck's uh, revenue. So, you know, there's definitely concentrations. You got Humira that's recently just gone off patent. So that is an issue for folks. I think on the flip side, I think there's a lot of speculation, a lot written about how much the biotech sector is really the minor league proving ground for a lot of these companies. And they're really looking to solve their issues by picking up additional products from the developmental stage companies. So I think that's what the expectation is on many of them. I mean, that's the general business plan. Most of these companies, they never intend to actually be in business producing and selling. They get proof of concept and get acquired by a big guy, right? I would say when you look at some of the productivity or the lack of productivity at a lot of the large shops, it has proven to be much more effective to go and fill your pipeline that way. I think Pfizer, I think 60% of what's expected in the future years has to come from M&A. So yeah, I think that's something that people have accepted and have come to terms with. And I think a lot of people would have expected 
a higher volume of M&A so far this year, and they haven't seen it, you know, with the drop in the prices, you would have thought. And I think, you know, for the larger transactions, I think there is concern that the government might get involved with some of that. That's been a little bit of a drag there. And I think on the other side is it, it really speaks to the resource allocation that, you know, people saying, well, something was selling for a billion dollars. Now it's selling for a hundred million dollars screaming by. I guess that all assumes that at a billion dollars, that there was something of value. Because then, yeah, if it was something value about a billion dollars, then at a hundred million dollars, it should be valuable. But what happens if that thing is simply not valuable at all? What happens if that valuation is just money, you know, chasing a place to go, just looking for a place to go? Exactly. And I think these guys, you know, to your point, Ron, they'd rather pay a multiple and get it right than to pay something and get it wrong. Because it's not just the cost of buying it, it's the cost of developing it too. You know, I was involved with buying a distressed asset this past summer. And, you know, and I was talking to a lot of buy side people. And the threshold for that was that if you give it to me, would I want to invest money in developing it? Right. That's kind of where the bar is right now. It's who cares if it's free. Is it worth my money? And I think a lot of people are starting to realize that some of their projects aren't passing that litmus test. And if you have 100 CD19 companies, how do you differentiate yourself? Even going back to the Merck situation, they have the best selling cancer drug ever. There's been $30 billion of PDL1 checkpoint to date. Merck represents $20 billion of that market. Yet there's 14 approved checkpoint drugs now. So what we've done is really commoditized some really fabulous science. And now you got Merck trying to protect their $20 billion. And you've got folks like GSK and Regeneron who are trying to break into that. So if you can demonstrate proof of concept and expand the addressable market, right now those checkpoints only work on about 30% of the patient population. If you can increase that to 50 or 60, you're doubling the size of the market and the durability of it as well. And you know you're going to create a food fight. Right. To your point, once you demonstrate proof of concept, over a $30 billion market, that's potentially $60 billion market. It's going to be a pretty interesting dynamic. Early in my career, Alan, back then I was a lender looking at cash flow and I'm working opposite a guy who was involved in pre-revenue kinds of companies. And I said to the guy, David, at some point, don't you need to make a profit here? And he said to me, Ron, the only thing worse than earnings are revenues, because once we put any number up on the board, it's bound to disappoint which I thought was an interesting observation. Now, I've heard it characterizes the earnings curse. Well, you're not generating money. You know, you can be whatever you want to be, right? Once you start making money, now you're getting graded on, on traditional metrics. It's like growing up. It was more fun to be a kid, wasn't it? <laughs> so we talked about some of the drivers. And one of the other areas that is getting a lot of attention right now in the media is obviously the opioid crisis and some of the bankruptcies that have come as a result of that. Bill, any thoughts on will we continue to see that or what can we anticipate to see surrounding the opioid crisis? I think that's a difficult question. It feels like we've seen the crest of the wave. There have been several really large cases, whether that's INSYS or Mallinckrodt, Purdue and, and Endo. But I think beyond that, you're starting to see significant settlements being put in place to resolve this litigation. I don't think that you're going to see a large wave of additional pharmaceutical bankruptcies related to opioids or opioid litigations. Now, could you see one of these entities trying to take advantage of what we've seen in the case of, for example, Johnson Johnson's talc liabilities with the Texas two-step divisive merger, which is the same thing that 3M has done with their earplug liabilities 
Would you see that? I suppose so. But I think the recent Third Circuit decision in LTL, which is sort of drawn into question the ability of a divisive merger, bad code to file for bankruptcy and get bankruptcy protection, I think that would put a lot of limitations on that as a response or as a way of dealing with these remaining liabilities that these entities have. So I think they're likely to try to find a way to enter a settlement and stick to that settlement as opposed to looking for bankruptcy as a way out. Awesome. Okay. So before we wrap up, I of course want to talk about more of a forward-looking and solutions conversation. I know the report talked about quote unquote self-help that organizations can engage in. Any thoughts or recommendations for entities that at this point are at a crossroads where they need to be making some tough calls and what are some tips you have on engaging in self-help? I guess I would really encourage people to be, you know, objectively honest with themselves and take their rose-colored sunglasses off. A lot of people have an experience failure and they really drag their legs in terms of accepting it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a failure, but, you know, people do have a hard time coming to terms with that. And I think like alcoholism, you have to identify the problem before it can be cured. And I think a lot of people try to drag their legs and are looking at rearview mirrors. I think you really got to understand and take inventory of where you're at. Also recognize that you don't have all the answers and you only know what you don't know. And you do probably want to expand the circle of friends. I think cash management and resource allocation is really important. And you need to have a strategy of how you're going to get to the other end. And I think you got to also be mindful of the fact that however painful it is, and even if you think your stock is really worth a lot more, you know, you need to get over that and just rip the bandaid off and start taking your medicine. Like I said earlier, sitting around with your fingers crossed is not a strategy. Excellent. Thanks. Ron? It always starts with liquidity management, religiously doing a monthly or 13-week cash flows for the first quarter, and then monthly for maybe a, a year after that, so that you know where you are on cash and, and what your runway is that you can survive. Obviously, in the event you have secured debt, you'll also have some covenants that you need to be mindful of and engage with the secured lenders, note holders, to be sure you're able to access the cash that might really be part of their collateral package. I think, you know, as Alan often says, you also have to sort of prioritize your spending on investment, on development of pharmaceuticals to the extent you have limited cash because your cash is beginning to deplete. You need to sort of triage that to prioritize what you're going to put your money into. And you got to be really mindful of your costs. And I think probably most of all, it's always nice to hire restructuring professionals. But I think maybe the most important thing is to take action while you still have money, because that's going to give you some ability to have flexibility and try to find a transaction when you're not on your heels. Bill, anything else you'd add to that? The one observation I would have is when you find yourself, any number of occasions that you see in the bankruptcy context, and I'm thinking of a case that I'm involved in right now, you find a company that has a product that they're going to take to market. They have some expectations of what that product is going to be able to generate, and they make investments based on that, but there's no accounting for the unforeseeable factors the unpredictable aspects of the market and the ways in which the winds of fortune can change. One example I'm thinking of in particular is a pharmaceutical company that I've been working with where they developed a really useful revolutionary product, not in the opioid space, it's a postmenopausal medication that could really revolutionize treatment. And they thought they had a real winner. So they ramped up their facilities, their production capabilities, and then COVID hit and nobody was going to their doctors and their reps couldn't get in to see the doctors, and it put their product on a completely different timeline in terms of development. 
based on what I've seen, I think they have a very profitable product going forward. But in the short term, they were faced with a lot of invested capital, a lot of debt that they'd taken on and no real ability in the timelines that they required to service that debt to be able to take advantage of it. And so being nimble in the face of changing economic circumstances, uh, changes in the market, and sort of not assuming that the current path that the market is on is going to continue indefinitely is a very important aspect of how do you plan for the future? How do you plan to go to market when you actually have something that's useful that can be profitable? Excellent. Well, I think those are great parting words. I always like ending on a positive forward-looking note. I know that these can be sort of dark and challenging conversations to look at, you know, the distress in the market, but I also think that with that comes opportunity. So appreciate everyone's time. Appreciate Gibbons sharing insights from your report and look forward to connecting again soon. Thank you very much, Morgan. Thank you for listening to Council That Cares. For more information on Holland and Knight's healthcare and life sciences team, please visit hklaw.com forward slash healthcare.